So many of you in the room uh, will be familiar with, and, and probably many of you uh, fans of, a 1995 film, uh, a Mel Gibson film, uh, which was titled Braveheart. Anybody in the room remember the name Braveheart? Yeah, so those of us with our hands raised are showing our age a little bit, aren't we? Because this movie was almost 30 years ago, and probably some of the younger ones are like, I never heard of Braveheart. You should go check it out, all right? And I'm hesitant to recommend movies sometimes because not everything in them are good. But, but what an amazing story uh, Braveheart tells. It's the true story of a man, a Scottish commoner by the name of William Wallace, who in the late 1200s, around 1295, 1297, led an uprising, a military campaign among the Scottish clans to go to war with England uh, and with the King of England known as Longshanks in order to reaffirm Scotland's national identity and to claim their freedom to fight for liberty uh, from, uh, from England. Uh, if you saw the movie, you will no doubt remember well the closing scene of the movie. Uh, in that closing scene, uh, uh, Mel Gibson, who plays the part of William Wallace, has been arrested. He has been taken, I believe, to London. He's been brought into the city center. All of the townspeople have gathered around to see his execution for treason against uh, the, uh, the crown and against King Edward I. And he's offered, just before he's executed... Uh, he's offered one last opportunity for mercy. Uh, he's offered the opportunity to submit and surrender to the King of England and to lay down his arms and to call out for mercy. And so the executioner leans in and says to him, with one word you can go free. One word just ask for mercy and you don't have to die. And all the townspeople begin chanting, mercy, 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 ask mercy. For mercy. And if you've seen the film, you know that, that Gibson or Wallace musters all of his strength after having been tortured and nearly dead already, musters all of his strength to utter one final word just before the executioner's sword falls and his life is taken from him. And do you know what the word was? It wasn't the word mercy. Do you know it was the word yeah, there you go. If you saw it, you know. He, he, he with every ounce of his, of his might, everything left, he yells, freedom! And with that, the executioner's sword falls. You see, for William Wallace and for countless patriots before him and since, freedom is worth dying for. He believed it. I want to welcome you to the sixth week in our study through the book of Galatians. For the last five Sundays, we have been digging through these chapters of Galatians, mining the truths of this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church to learn really one simple truth. And that truth is that we are free in Christ and that the only way that that freedom comes to us is through the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul has been making over and over again. For three chapters, we've been reading it week by week and studying it and unpacking it together. Over and over, Paul has been making these impassioned 
arguments that people are saved by grace, that people are not saved by works, that we're saved by faith, not by the law, that we're saved by trusting, not by doing. And at the risk of being redundant, uh, because I took you to this verse two weeks ago, I took you back to this verse last Sunday, I want to take you there one more time uh, today, look at chapter number three, verse number 11. This really is the linchpin of Paul's argument about this point of being free by the grace of God and not the law. Chapter three, verse 11 says, but that no man, no person is ever justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident For the just, Habakkuk says, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the just or the justified shall live or be made alive or be given eternal life by their faith in Christ. This is Paul's argument. He's made it over and over again in multiple ways from the very first part of this letter that we are saved by grace. In fact, in chapter number one, Paul was very clear to say, this gospel that I'm preaching, this gospel of freedom, gospel of grace, is not a message that I have been given from some other man. He says, I didn't get this from myself. I didn't come up with this myself, and no other man taught this to me. He makes the point in chapter 1, this gospel of grace is the gospel of Jesus. This is what Jesus preached. And then he goes on to say, not only that, Jesus preached it, and Jesus revealed it to me. My message is one that Jesus has revealed to me directly, which, by the way, is a, a wonderful and true claim that his apostleship was as authoritative as Peter, James, and John and the others because he had received his message from Jesus directly. In chapter number two, he detailed for the Galatian people how that he had met multiple times with the apostles, with Peter and with James and with John and with all of the apostles in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and that they had affirmed his message, that it wasn't a rogue teaching, that we're saved by grace and not the law. No, the apostles affirmed it. It's orthodoxy that we are not saved by keeping the law. And in chapter number three, he makes the argument in multiple ways. Chapter three, he reminds them of their own experience. And you'll recall that in chapter three, he begins by saying, let me ask you a question. Did you experience God's grace when you were keeping the law or before you ever tried to keep the law? He says, before you ever tried to keep the law, God was giving you grace. You don't earn it, it's mercy that uh, brings the grace of God, the salvation that he offers us. He also, in chapter number uh, three, reminded them of Abraham. And he said to them that the law of Moses could never annul the promise that God had made to Abraham. And also in chapter three, as we learned, he said that we Gentile believers are being adopted into Abraham's family because of our faith and our trust in Jesus. Now, here's my point. For three chapters, over and over, the Apostle Paul has been methodically, uh, meticulously uh, breaking down, deconstructing the arguments, the positions of the Jewish legalizers, the Judaizers, who were saying you have to keep the law to be a Christian. You have to keep the law to be saved. He's breaking down that argument all the way down to the foundation. And from there, he builds it back up to say to them, no, we are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know you may be saying, Pastor, this is week number six. We, we began this five Sundays ago, and every Sunday you've said pretty much the same thing over and over and over, just in different ways. Well, forgive me, that's what Paul has done for three chapters. I'm just preaching what Paul has said. And I hope that though we've been with Paul emphasizing this fact over and over, that you've heard it from Paul's arguments in different ways. But here's what I want you to know, that for Paul, and neither should it be for us. For Paul, this was not simply an academic exercise. Listen to me. Paul was not saying, I just want you to understand the process of salvation. Or I just want you to have some theological uh, expertise. I just want you to, to, to split some theological hairs with me. That's not why Paul is spending so much time making this point. Here's what Paul knows. That our understanding of how we come to faith in Jesus or how we are made right with God will affect how we relate to God. Let me say it again this way. Our understanding of how we come into a relationship with God will affect how we relate to God in that relationship. That's why this is so important. See, Paul understood that if, if we understand that I can never do anything to save myself, it's never going to be by the works of the law. It'll never have anything to do with my goodness, my religiosity, my performance, my observance of the rules. It'll never be anything that I've done to earn it. It's only by his grace. Paul knew that if I understand that, then I will live my entire life with a freedom and a liberty and a joy which can never be taken away from me because it's rooted in Christ. In his work. But he also knew that if I misunderstand my relationship with God, and if I misunderstand how it is that I am in this right fellowship and this right standing with God, if I think for a moment that I have done anything to earn it, then Paul knew that I would spend all of my days seeking to earn it even more. And that I would spend all of my days in the bondage of rule keeping and nitpicking and feeling like I must perform in order to have God's approval. He knew that if I could understand how it is that God saves me by grace, then I would rest confidently in Jesus Christ and I would have security in Christ alone. But that if I didn't understand that, then I would strive constantly to earn God's favor and I would forever feel like a failure and that I would never be free. And so Paul spent so much time saying, this truth matters. Get it right. Now here's what you'll discover to the glee of some of you. It is that the text is going to change a little bit beginning in, in chapter 4, verse number 12 because Paul's made his point about how we come into a right standing with God and now the, the, uh, the, ch the change in the, his presentation is going to become obvious in our text. There are two ways in which you're going to notice as we read the text is going to change. Number one is that the tone of the text will change. We'll talk about it in just a second, but the tone is going to change. Paul's words from here on out through chapter 6 are going to be much more tender than they've been. The second thing that you'll notice in the change in the text is that having proven his theological point, 
Now Paul is going to become very practical. And he's going to tell us in the remainder of the book how it is that we live out in practical ways, in relationships, in workplace, in everyday life, how it is that we live out the freedom that we have been given in Christ. So the tone is going to change and the purpose of the letter is going to change just a bit. So you'll see it immediately, but I want you to follow along as I begin reading it. I'm in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 12. Would you follow along with me, please? Galatians 4 verse 12 says this. He says, brethren or brothers, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. And you have not injured me at all. I have, I've lost nothing by becoming like you are. You know how that through the infirmity of my flesh, I preach the gospel unto you at the first. And my suffering or my temptation, which was in my flesh, you did not despise. You did not reject me because of it, but you received me. You received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus himself. Where is then the blessedness of which you spake? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Can I ask you to stop right there if you have a pen in your hand? Verse number 16, that question, you should underline it. You should circle it. You should highlight it with a, with a yellow marker. You ought to turn down the corner of that page so you never lose it. Draw arrows to it. Never lose that question. That's a really important question. Have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Verse 17, they zealously affect you, but not for your good. Yes, they would exclude you from me that you might affect them. It's it's archaic King James language when he says they affect you and they want you to affect them. Just think of the word affection. The word affect means affection. They have great affection for you and they want you to put your affection on them. Verse number 19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice or to change my tone for I stand in doubt of you. I'm going to stop reading right there just uh, for now. We'll come back and finish reading the rest of the chapter in just a minute. But I want to begin helping you see in this passage um, into the heart of Paul as it relates to his relationship with these Galatian people. Write this down if you're a note taker. Let's begin by talking about truth, lies, and our dearest relationships. Truth, lies, and our dearest relationships. I said to you that the tone of the letter is changing. Just to prove that point, let me take you back uh, to Galatians chapter number one and show you the previous tone the tone with which Paul began the letter. Galatians chapter one, verse six says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of God unto another gospel. Uh, What that means is I'm blown away. What is wrong with you people? You're not thinking. What's your problem? I mean, really, it it is an angry approach out of the gates with which Paul comes to these Galatians. He says in verse 7, there's those who are troubling you. They're preaching another gospel. It's not even another gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. And let anybody who preaches a perversion of the gospel be accursed. I mean, those are strong words. 
So he comes out of the gate with them with this very terse and tense um, attitude toward them. Look at chapter number three and verse one. It continues, oh, foolish Galatians, who has deceived you? Who's bewitched you? I told you that the Phillips translation of that verse is, oh, you Galatian idiots. It really is what it means. Oh, you Galatian idiots, you are acting idiotically. What is your problem? Now, the truth is, Paul has good reason to be angry. He has, he has good reason to be upset with them. And I have to tell you that on more than one occasion, in relationships, I have felt the same kind of anger towards someone in relationship. And I have demonstrated the same kind of tone and anger that Paul is demonstrating. In fact, can I take a little survey? Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you to answer in your heart. Have you ever responded in a frustration or in a relationship? Have you ever responded to some situation in a way that was just harsh and hard only to know that you need to soften your tone a little later? Anybody in the room ever done that? Again, don't raise your hand. I know you have. All of us have done that, and Paul does the exact same thing here. He begins very strong, but in chapter 4 and verse number 12, he begins to make this turn, as I mentioned, and his tone begins to soften. Uh, soften. Look at chapter 4 and verse 12 again. He says, brothers, I urge you. It's no longer, what's your problem, you idiots? <laughs> it's brothers. Can we talk? In fact, why don't you take your pen and circle the word brothers in verse 12? Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through, maybe you can do it later this afternoon. Go through from chapter 4, verse 12 to the end of the book. Read the verses and circle the word brothers or brethren. Every time you find it. You're going to see it a lot. I mean, you'll find it in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. Over and over, he now is referring them to his brethren. And if that's not intimate enough, look at chapter 4 and verse number 19. He refers to them as my little children. Man, he, he's really softening now. He's saying, come on, guys, my little children, let's talk about your confusion. Now, here's what's obvious. I mean, it's so plain in this text. It is that Paul is lamenting the loss of their friendship, and he's longing that their friendship can be restored. I want you to write down a principle. As a follower of Jesus, this is an undeniable biblical truth. We don't always understand it or live by it, but it's always going to be true. Write it down. It is that every Christian relationship, every Christian relationship is built upon the foundation of gospel truth. Now, I want you to think about this with me. What was it that brought Paul and the Galatians together? Paul the Pharisee and these Galatian Gentiles, many of them, what was it that brought them together? Very simply, it was one thing. It was the gospel of Jesus. And the friendship that they built was firmly established upon that reality of who Jesus was and what he had done. Look with me in verse number 13. He tells us that's where their relationship began. Uh, began. You know that through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel to you. I began our relationship by bringing you the gospel. This happened in Acts 14. When he goes to Galatia, he preaches the gospel in that region. They come to faith. Notice what he says in verse number 12. He says, brothers, 
I beseech you, be as I am, for I have become like you are. What does that mean? It means simply this. He's saying to them, I was a Jewish Pharisee. You were a Gentile pagan. I followed the law to be right with God. You followed no law and were not right with God. So I became like you. I laid off the law. I stopped trusting in the law. I laid off my obligation to the ordinances and commands of the law. I have become like you so that you could become like me and together we could meet at the cross. If y'all are listening, say amen. That's the basis of every Christian relationship. We left who we used to be and we came together to the cross to meet under the foundation or on the foundation of the gospel. Now this is true in all of our relationships. If you have a Christian marriage, that is to say, if you are a Christian man married to a Christian woman, know this, that the depth of your marriage, the beauty of your marriage, the intimacy in your marriage, the lifelong fellowship of your marriage will be a beautifully maintained blessing when the two of you as a believer and a believer remain in a relationship which is rooted and founded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But just like any other relationship or marriage where it's even not Christians, if we begin to live for ourselves and demand our own way and leave the cross, then our relationships can be broken. In Christian friendships, it is the cross that brings us together. In, in our family relationships, if you're a Christian mom or Christian dad or Christian single parent, a Christian couple raising uh, your little ones or influencing your grandchildren, we raise them up on the foundation of the cross, the gospel of Jesus, and that holds a family together. Same thing's true in your friendships and your life groups and our church family. I'm simply saying that every Christian relationship is built upon the foundation of the gospel. We come together. And notice in verse 14, Paul said, man, when I came to you, I came preaching the gospel and I had this difficulty in my body, this suffering, this temptation, this infirmity. And Paul speaks about this in a number of his writings and we don't know exactly what his infirmity was. He calls it in one place, a thorn in the flesh, Satan, uh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him humble. But he had something physically wrong. We don't know what it is, and any speculation of what it might have been is purely speculation because the Bible doesn't say. But it seems apparent in this passage that whatever Paul's physical problem was, it affected his ability to get around or his ability to be mobile or his ability to interact with others because he talks in this passage, look at verse number 14, how that you did not reject me. You didn't reject me because of that physical problem that I have. You received me, even though I had that physical problem. Now, a lot of people believe, and again, this is speculation, but many people believe that Paul's ailment was his eyesight, that he was nearly blind, or perhaps even blind, and that he had to be led about wherever he went. And that created a burden for the people that uh, were in relationship with him. Now, I don't know if that was it or not, by the way, if it was, doesn't it make the ministry of Paul all the more amazing that a man who was blind or nearly blind would make multiple missionary journeys and evangelize the Roman Empire? I don't know if it was his eyesight, but he does say in this passage, look at verse 15, I bear witness of you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given your eyes to me. There's a hint 
that maybe his eyes were the problem and he said, you loved me so much you would have given me your own eyes. I don't know. But the point is, he says, you received me. He says to them in verse 14, you received me in the same way that you received an angel or even would have received Jesus Christ. You received me with that much love. And then he says, you spoke of blessedness and happiness when you thought of our relationship. But then something happened. Something happened that began to break that relationship. Look at what happens. Look at verse number 17. He says, they. If you got a pen in your hand, would you circle the word they? They. They is this group that are unnamed, but we know who they are in this passage. Two times in verse 17, he mentions them, they. These are the legalizers, the Judaizers, the ones who are coming in after Paul and attacking his authority and attacking his message. They have this desire for your affection. They've come in. They don't want you to have affection toward me and my message, Paul says. They, the legalizers, want to steal your affection. And they want to separate you, verse number 15 or 17, they want to separate you or exclude you from me. Now, loved ones, I want you to hear me. Satan has a million lies that he will tell you. And he has 10 million liars who will speak those lies to you. And in our Christian relationships, our marriages, our families, our friendships, our churches, our small groups, when Satan begins to speak those lies to us and some person, they, whoever they are, they say, they do, they all, whoever they are, when they come in and they begin to speak to you, if you're listening, say amen. They begin to speak to you and separate you from the people who have always told you the truth. And, there's, and nothing's changed about what they're telling you. They're still telling you the truth. But you're now, because they have led your heart away, you're beginning to look at those people who have always loved you and told you the truth suspiciously. You can know this, that your heart is being deceived. And that you're stepping away from the foundation of the cross and that that relationship is being broken. Look at verse 16. Paul says, am I your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? I'm telling you the same thing I told you when I was there. I'm preaching the same gospel I've always proclaimed. There's nothing different about what I'm saying. And we were friends and we were in fellowship and we stood together on the foundation of Jesus. But now... Suddenly, I am your enemy. And I have to tell you, you can hear the pain in Paul's heart. I mean, it's obvious, the loss and the grief that he's feeling. In fact, look at what he says in verse number 19. He says, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He says, I'm in anguish. I'm like a woman in childbirth, in labor. I'm anguishing. For, for this relationship, for this baby to be fully developed and delivered and this relationship to exist. And he says, you and I ought to be in this relationship, but it's now like I'm having to labor again to have this relationship, this friendship with you. Because Christ is no longer being fully developed in you. He says in verse number 19, verse number 20, I long to be in fellowship with you. I desire to be present with you. I, want, I don't want to speak to you this way. 
I want to change my tone toward you. But then he says in verse number 20, but I just don't know what to think of you. I just don't know what to think of you. So here's, here's uh, something that might help us. What do we do when we have a broken Christian relationship like Paul is experiencing in Galatians? Because all of us have them. What do you do when a Christian relationship is broken? Let me suggest a few things. First of all, I would suggest you should reach or reach out. Now, you probably won't want to if you're like me. Very often you won't want to. Thank God for my wife. Because I will tell you that so many times over the years as, as uh, we've encountered a broken relationship in our family or a broken relationship in a church relationship or a broken relationship with some friends or whatever, so many times Tracy will say to me, in fact, every time she'll say to me, so you're going to reach out? And I'm like, no, thanks for asking. Don't ask again. And she'll say, well, you know, you really should. And I, say, I know, but I don't want to. Thank God for Tracy. Amen, men. Thank God for our wives. <laughs> and and so, so we ought to reach out. Paul reached out. Paul wrote a letter. Maybe you need to write a letter or an email or a text. Or you know, had somebody come to me after the first service and say, how do I do that? And I, I said, you know, what, what if it's just a text that says, look, I know we need to get together. I want to talk about our stuff. And it just so it's not like, well, hey, let's hang out. And, and maybe while we're hanging out, it'll come up. No, it's just, we're going to deal with it, man. We're going to talk about it. So reach out. Number two, remain tender. This, don't let your heart grow hard. Don't become embittered. Uh, don't um, burn a bridge, but allow the Holy Spirit to keep your heart tender. And number three, pray and hope. Pray and hope and wait for the day that reconciliation could come. That's all Paul could do. Paul reached out in this letter. He sent the letter to them. He... Um, he, was, he remained tender, he, was, he became uh, soft in his tone, and he ends the, the letter, Galatians 6 and verse 18, the last verse in the, in the letter, he says, brethren, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he prayed for them. And this is what I would recommend to you. Reach out, uh, remain tender, and then wait and pray. Now, that's Paul's illustration or Paul's example to us about how to, how to manage a broken relationship. Let's finish the chapter, though, by looking in chapter uh, 4, verse 21, down through verse number 31. And here's what we're going to do in, in just the few minutes we have remaining. I want to read these verses in, in just a moment. Uh, and then I'm going to explain them to you, and we'll do it, do it quickly. Um, but I want us to leave here today almost like we're stepping through a threshold into a new life of freedom. And you'll see this in these final 10 verses of the chapter. Before we read them, I want you to write this down. Just, just kind of this final principle that Paul gives them before he turns a corner in his teaching here. It is simply to say that uh, he would say to them, you are born free to live free. You are born free to live free. I mentioned that the tone had changed. We've talked about that. The purpose also changes. He's going to become very practical uh, in this part of the book. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. You'll see how he becomes so practical. He says in chapter 5 and verse 1, stand therefore. Circle the word therefore if you're a note taker. Therefore. You know what you do when you see the word therefore. I've told you for years. You look and see what it's there for. So he's, he's referring to everything that he's taught them. All of this theological truth he's given them about salvation by grace. through We're free in Christ because of his mercy. And in chapter 5 verse 1 he says, therefore, because you've been made free in Christ... 
Christ has made you free, so be free. It's almost as if he brings them to the threshold of this new life of freedom, and he says to them, now go. You're free, so go be free. And stop living under the bondage of the law. Did you ever say this to your kids when, when they were teenagers? Maybe they are now, and you're saying this now, perhaps. Trust me, I used to say this to our kids all the time when they started driving, and they'd kind of go out on their own. We'd say to them before they'd leave the house, hey, don't forget who you are. Remember your name. Remember who you are and live like who you are. That's what Paul's saying. I've told you who you are. Now live like who you are. Let's read this. I'm in chapter 4, verse 21. Now, admittedly, before I read these verses, let me just tell you they're difficult. Okay, These are maybe, um, just on the surface reading, the most complex verses in the book. But bear with me. We'll, we'll understand them together, okay? Let's read. Verse number 21 says, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you truly hear the law? Do you really know what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, a slave, a servant, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, and he who was of the free woman was born by promise. Now, these things are an allegory. That doesn't mean that, that they didn't really happen. It just means that they're illustrative. These things are representative of something greater. These things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which engenders bondage, that's Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds or answers to Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children. Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free. And that Jerusalem is the mother of all of us. For it is written, verse 27 says, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and shout or cry, you that travailest not, or that woman that cannot have children, for the desolate uh, shall have, uh, I'm sorry, for the desolate has many more children than she which has a husband or she that's not desolate. Now, we, brothers, as Isaac was, we are the children of promise. But as, uh, but as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out that bondwoman with her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not the children of bondage or the children of the bondwoman, but we are the children of the free. Do you agree with what I said? Is that a difficult passage just on a surface reading? It is. Well, let's talk about it. Paul makes the point that those who wanted to keep the law needed to understand fully what the law told about their history. So he goes again back to Abraham. Here's what he says. Abraham had two sons, not just one. Now the truth is Abraham had more than two sons, but for his illustration, he talks about these two sons. He says that Abraham had a son by a bondwoman or a slave woman, a servant. Her name was Hagar. And her son, their son together, was Ishmael. If you want to go read about this later, you can read it in Genesis chapter 16. 
It's in that chapter that Sarah says to Abraham, hey, you know, God's promised us a son, but this thing isn't happening. And so maybe you need to go in and sleep with Hagar, my servant. She's an Egyptian girl. She's, she can have children. Why don't you just go make a baby with her? And we'll let that son be the son that God promised. By the way, a whole different message, terrible plan. Don't ever get ahead of God. Still, there are problems today because of that decision, all right? Well, that's the son of Abraham that's in reference here when he says the son of a bondwoman. It's Hagar, her son Ishmael. Then he says Abraham had another son. That son was the son of promise. That's the son of Sarah, and his name is Isaac. So he draws these two lines of Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah and Isaac. Now look at verse number 24. He says, these two women and their sons... These two are the two covenants. So he takes the real history of Abraham and his two sons and their mothers, and he sets that history up as a parallel or an example of the two covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. The covenant of law represented by Hagar and Ishmael and the covenant of grace represented by Sarah and Isaac. And he essentially is saying these are two totally different kinds of women, two totally different kinds of offspring, and two totally different kinds of covenants. Now, if y'all tracking with me, say amen. amen. All right. He then begins in verse number 23 to describe the differences between the two covenants represented by the differences in these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac and their mothers. Look at verse number 23. He says, that which is born of the servant is born after the flesh. Now, I don't need to tell you what that means, right? It's pretty plain. It means that Ishmael was born for one reason, one reason only. Because Abraham and, and uh, Hagar made a baby. That's, he was born of the flesh, okay? He also then goes on to say that this son of Abraham named Ishmael... And Hagar, her mo- or his mother, is an earthly relationship. Uh, look at it, verse number 24 and 25. He says, these things are an allegory. These are the two covenants. For the one that uh, is Mount Sinai, which is where God gave the law, which engenders bondage. Mount Sinai produces bondage. That's represented by Hagar. For Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage to her children. So he's drawing a correlation between Hagar and Ishmael and the mountain of Sinai, where God gave the law, and the city of Jerusalem, where they were living under bondage. He's simply saying that everything that happens under the law is earthly, and it produces bondage, and bondage only. Third thing he says about Hagar and Ishmael and the law is that it produces bondage and then those in bondage persecute those who live in promise. Look at verse 29. But as at that time, he that was born after the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him that was born after the spirit, that's Isaac. What does Paul have in mind? Every Jewish listener uh, in reading his letter would have known. He's referring to the time in Genesis 21, you can go read it later, where there's this significant life moment in Isaac's life. Ishmael, who's a few years older than him, his half-brother, mocks him, makes fun of his little brother Isaac, and Sarah sees this 
the son of Hagar making fun of her son, and she says to Abraham, get him out of the tent. You take that bondwoman Hagar and her son, and you run them off. I don't want them living with us anymore. And so she, Hagar, and Ishmael are driven away from the family, driven, driven away from Abraham, and, uh, and have to go and live on their own. So here's what he's doing. He's saying Abraham had a, had a wife or a, a woman that he, that he had a baby with named Hagar. She was a servant. The son that was produced was a servant. And this represents the law. And all the law does is it comes from the earth. It's produced by the flesh. It produces bondage and it persecutes those who are living in freedom. Do you understand? That's the illustration. Then he transitions over to Isaac and his mother, Sarah. Look at verse number 23. He says in verse 23, but he who, was of the, uh, he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he that was of the free woman was by promise. So he says, now the birth of Isaac was a different kind of birth. It was by promise or by the miracle of God. Now, don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean that Isaac was virgin born like Jesus was. That's not what it means. It simply means that God performed a miracle to make the womb of Sarah able in her old age to produce a child when she had never been able to conceive a child in her life. It was a fulfillment of his promise because of their faith. So one was just simply man and woman doing what men and women do. One was God making a promise and keeping his promise. Okay, That's Isaac. That's grace. That's salvation through freedom. He says in verse 26 that while the law is earthly... And, and correlated to Mount Sinai and to the earthly Jerusalem. He says in verse number 26, our covenant is rooted not in the earth, it's rooted in the heavenly Jerusalem. It's free and it's above and it's the mother of us all. He says in verse number 30, that what the fr- those who are free ought to do is cast off those who would persecute them and cast off the bondage and go and live in freedom. Here's Paul's point. His point is to say that the legalizers and the Judaizers have had their day and that Christ came and fulfilled the law and so now no Christian should ever think I am right with God because of what I do. That's earthly, that's bondage. No, I'm right with God because from heaven Christ came and has made me free in the covenant of grace. You are free because God gave a better covenant with better promises. Now, while it's complicated to our Gentile understanding, it is a beautiful, perfect transition into chapter 5. Because he ends chapter 4 by saying in verse number 28, Brothers, we are the children of Isaac. We're the children of freedom. He says in verse number 31, So then, brothers, we are not the children of the law. We're not the children of religion. We're not the children of keeping the rules. We are the children of the free. So do you see what Paul does? He puts his arm around these brothers that he's so frustrated with, these sisters in the Galatian church and his, and their, and, uh, his brothers in the Galatian church, and he walks them through this understanding of how the law can never save you. That's earthly. That's like Hagar. That's like Ishmael. It's never going to save you. He brings them to the very threshold of a life where there's this beautiful life of freedom in Christ. And he walks them here, and he says, you are not the son or the daughter of the law. You are the son or the daughter of freedom. 
Because God made you a promise. And you've trusted in his promise. And now you're free. And so he says, standing at the threshold, so go and be free. Stand, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand, therefore, in the freedom with which Christ has made you free. And he will spend all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 telling us what that free life looks like. So, can I be the voice of Paul to you? Forgive me. Can I be the voice of William Wallace to you? Like, can I say to you, freedom! (laughs) Can I say to you, stop muddling around in rule keeping? Stop living in the bondage of thinking I've got to perform for God to like me. God's probably ticked off at me most of the time because I'm such a failure. Can you rest in this single fact that God made a promise in Christ and you believed it and you were the son or the daughter of that freedom? Now, go be.